Lord, we pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds to hear from you, to encounter you, whether for the first time or the thousand and first time. May your spirit bring your presence to us. May we open our hearts in response. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Please take a seat. Welcome if you're watching online, whether live or later. Wonderful to have you with us. Thanks so much for taking time to tune in this morning and be part of our broader New Vine family. And welcome to you who are here in person today. It's so wonderful to see so many of you here. Uh, and uh, uh, we've got a really, really special service this morning. Uh, let me introduce to you our, our special guest. Uh, John Adia is Laureate Professor of Medicine and Clinical Epidemiology at the University of Newcastle. Uh, John's particular expertise is in population, clinical, molecular and genetic epidemiology. Uh, uh, John trained in clinical medicine in his native Canada uh, and also completed a PhD in molecular genetics at the University of Toronto before moving to uh, Newcastle in 1999. I think that makes you a double doctor, is that right? Uh, a medical doctor and a proper doctor as well with the PhD. Ha, 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 ha. But more than that, uh, John is uh, also a fellow with the Royal College of Physicians of Canada and the Royal Australasian College of Phil uh, Physicians, in here in Australia obviously, and is currently the Assistant Dean of Research in the College of Health and Medicine at the University of Newcastle, as well as being, um, in his spare time, it would seem, a staff specialist in the Division of Medicine at the John Hunter Hospital. Uh, John has won many significant awards for his work. He's the author of... Uh, more than 600 peer-reviewed publications and over 120 conference proceedings. That was, that's probably outdated now. It's probably a, a, a bunch more. Um, and I can tell you as a recovering academic, that is <laughs> off the charts. Uh, his research has been cited over 15,000 times. He's been published in some of the most prestigious uh, journals in the world, including Nature, Nature Genetics, Science, Lancet, and JAMA. Uh, his, uh, he supervises a number of PhD and master's students in public health, including um, one of our uh, own erstwhile new, new viners, uh, Shu Ren, uh, who completed his PhD under John's supervision uh, recently in pharmacy. Uh, and good to have you with us this morning, Shu, even by video link. Uh, John became Professor of Medicine and Clinical Epidemiology in 2006, but in 2019, John was awarded the title of Laureate Professor, a rare honour which recognises exceptional academic achievement and which is among the highest academic honours conferred at the University of Newcastle, an award committee comprising scholars from across the country unanimously endorsed uh, the five-year award of Laureate Professor. Uh, John is also still active, as I alluded before, in clinical medicine as a general physician and works at the John Hunter Hospital for three months uh, out of the year. Somehow, he also finds time to, to preach uh, from time to time and has preached uh, regularly at the Granary Church uh, in Newcastle over the years. Uh, and he's also found time to join us today, for which we are deeply grateful and very thankful. Uh, and I think we can agree that John is eminently qualified to talk about faith and science. And it's a great, great joy and honour to welcome Laureate Professor John Adia. John, come on up.
Well, that's an introduction my parents would have been proud of. <laughs> I'll give you control of this. Now, if there are still any dare kids in the uh, congregation today, we again encourage you to come on down the front, uh, sit with uh, Caleb and, and Isaac feeling a little bit lonely down here. They reserved all these seats with, uh, with chocolates and uh, it looks like they're going to have to eat them all themselves <laughs> later on. John, welcome. So wonderful to have you with us, uh, as I say. Thank you for your time today. Well, it's an honour to be asked. Uh, we've got a number of questions um, to, to think through today as part of our uh, series, A God You Can Believe In. And our particular topic today is, is faith and science, as I've said. Um, and as I've said, you're not only eminently qualified to discuss this. I, I want to approach the topic from, hey, there's courage. Good on you. Well, well done. For those watching at home, we've, we've got some takers for the chockies down the front. Um, or at least one. Uh, so I want to approach the topic today, if I could, from two different angles. Um, firstly, on the one hand, there are some uh, who aren't people of faith or who are even kind of anti-faith who believe that science and faith are somehow inherently at odds. And on the other hand, there are some people of faith who see science as something to be kind of deeply suspicious of. So we'll start with the first side of that argument, if that's okay, the... Uh, uh, those who are kind of anti-faith anti or uh, see science and faith as being at odds, uh, who might argue that science has replaced the need for faith, if you like. Then we'll come to the other, other position. But firstly, I wonder if we could clarify these terms a little bit, faith and science. What, what are your understandings of those two terms? So I guess when I think about faith, I think about a personal belief in the Judeo-Christian God, a personal God who has revealed himself and wants to be in a relationship uh, with us and wants us to be in a relationship with him. And by science, I mean the, the method of observing nature, making measurements, generating hypotheses, and then testing those hypotheses that has come out of the Enlightenment uh, in our Western history. And these are two things which come together in your own story, your own journey. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your journey in both faith and science? Yeah. So I can tell you a bit about both of those journeys. So I guess on, on the faith side, I was born in Canada uh, to uh, parents who had emigrated from Egypt. So both my parents were Egyptian. So when I first uh, grew up, it was in the Coptic Orthodox Church. Uh, so I remember lots of bells and incense and icons and... Um, not understanding anything because the service was in Aramaic and in Coptic. So the, the first uh, few years in my, of my faith journey were... Not, not languages that you were fluent no, in at that stage. No. no, right. Anyone else fluent in... Um... <laughs> I can imagine that was a challenge. Yes. Please. So it was more when I was in primary school that um, we moved neighborhoods and our, our neighbors invited us to their church, which was an Anglican church. Very typical Anglican, so I went through... Uh, junior choir and senior choir and altar boy and youth group. Um, and I guess it's only when I went away to university that I um, really had to decide, is this going to be my own? Is this faith going to be my own? Or is it something that my parents just took me to? Um, and so I, I ended up in some evangelical Anglican churches, and it just made sense to me. Um, it just seemed to fit, and more and more I, I made it my own. And I think if I, so it was much more of a gradual journey for me uh, in faith. And if I had to point to one particular um, moment, it was uh, a sermon that uh, John Lennox gave. He's a, a professor of um, mathematics at Oxford, and he was visiting Canada, and he happened to come to our church, and he preached on the parable of the rich fool. 
you know, the, the one who has a big harvest and builds storehouses and says, I'm now, now going to relax, you know, store up and relax and have a good retirement. And God says, you fool, this very night you're going to die and what will it have been all for? So probably that was the one kind of clincher in a long journey um, that I said, yes, faith makes sense to me. Um, I guess on the science side, uh, as a child, I was always interested in science. I, I, when I look back, uh, my mom kept a little notebook every year of, um, you know, my school reports, and I always wanted, I always wanted to be failed experiments or <laughs> <laughs> not quite, but I always wanted to be either a doctor or a scientist, um, and I was fascinated by the the brain and the mind and that interface between the two. So um, I did my undergraduate degree in neurophysiology. And then I got into medical school. I did a, a combined MD-PhD program. Uh, so I did the first two years of medical school. Then I stopped to do my PhD for five years. Uh, and that was a disaster. <laughs> um, I spent five years looking for a particular protein that we thought was involved in multiple sclerosis. And the idea was that if we could um, find this protein, we could stop the immune reaction that started multiple sclerosis. And I tried everything. I tried every method known to try and find this protein and uh, came up with nothing. And I thought, what a waste of time. But in the world of research, that just kind of rules out a bunch of pathways for others not to follow, is that? Is that well, so it's a success in a way, isn't it? It, it helps to think of it that way. But, <laughs> it, but to be honest, I thought I'm never going to do research again. Um, so I went back to medical school um, and I finally had a chance to do um, neurosurgery, which was what I was really interested in, and found I hated it. The, the, the um, kind of logistics of brain surgery are that um, it's actually pretty boring. They're very long surgeries, like eight hours, 10 hours, and most of it is pretty unexciting. Um, so then I felt like, where do I go from here? What I wanted to do my whole life is, is gone. And then I started my registrar years, and I discovered epidemiology and found I really enjoyed it. Um, so I, I did that, um, and then, so by that time, Melissa had come to Canada for uh, five years. We'd been married for five years, and she got tired of Canadian winters, had enough. She said, we're heading back to Australia, um, and just at that time, there was this whole new field evolving called genetic epidemiology, um, the combination of genetics and epidemiology. Can you just unpack that a little bit for us, this field? Because yeah. it sounds fascinating, but... For us laymen, um, it might be helpful to understand a little bit more what that means. So some of you may, may know that um, the human genome has been mapped. So we've actually read the DNA code of all three billion letters in our DNA. Um, that was completed in the year 2000, and we thought that would be the key to life. Turns out that just the start. It's like having a phone book in a foreign language, and you have all the letters, but you don't know what it means. So the, the field of genetic epidemiology Epidemiology, you'd think I'd know that by now, is, um, is about figuring out how genes and which genes are involved in each phenotype, which, which is a, an observable physical characteristic, um, which ones are responsible for. So, you know, the shape of our face, whether we are fat or thin, whether we have asthma or not, whether we develop diabetes or not, which genes are involved in uh, defining those or, or creating the risk to develop those. Uh, and how they interact with each other. So. Uh, well, well, sounds uh, sounds very technical, um, but you've explained it um, very clearly as well. Thank you. Uh, and then you're also, a, a, as I mentioned, still a, a general clinical uh, clinical general physician, uh, and work three months a year. Uh, 
at the John Hunter. What does that look like as part of, as a different part of your career? So basically, yeah, for three three months a year, uh, I uh, still go in onto the wards and uh, see patients and take the history, do physicals. Um, for 20 years, I did general medicine, which is kind of a, an all-purpose physician. So as the population gets older and more people um, have multi-system disease, so they don't just don't present to hospital with just a pneumonia, but you have a diabetic whose sugars go off, who then has a, uh, a pneumonia, and pneumonia causes a heart attack, so you have multiple problems at the same time. So they don't fit neatly under a subspecialist. That's where a general physician comes in who can kind of handle multiple things at once. So I did that for 20 years, and then just two, three years ago now, um, I took a sabbatical, retrained in palliative care, uh, and now I, I do that uh, when I'm on the wards. Which um, sounds like a demanding but uh, perhaps really meaningful uh, form of medicine. Yeah, no, I find I really, I still enjoy talking to patients, talking to families, and I think the luxury we have in palliative care is just to spend time with people and be able to explain things. Yeah, maybe we can look look back to that a little bit later on, but if I can shift gears a little, um, in a, a book that we looked at here a couple of weeks ago, and uh, if you've been following along on this series, uh, thanks very much. If, if you haven't been able to um, tune in for the last two weeks of this series, you may want to go back and watch it on YouTube, but in one of those we talk about a book by uh, a neuroscientist called Sam Harris, who I'm sure you're familiar with, and the book's called The End of Faith, and in it he says, faith and science are in conflict, and because they're at odds, he says, a scientist can only be a Christian if, they, uh, if she or he suspends all their scientific rationality on a Sunday. Um, he puts it kind of sarcastically, a little bit like this. He says, a person can be a God-fearing Christian on Sunday and a working scientist come Monday morning without ever having to account for the partition that seems to have erected itself in his head while he slept. He can, as it were, have his reason and eat it too. Um, we've heard a little bit about your, your journey in, in faith and science. Um, what, what's your response to this idea that faith and science are just ir irreconcilably in conflict? Yeah, I, I think Sam Harris has a very narrow view of science and a very narrow view of faith. Um, and he, I think he certainly doesn't speak for most uh, scientists or many scientists when he takes that position. And I've, I've just put up... Um, I had put together a few quotes from some famous scientists. So... Isaac Newton, who is the father of physics, you know that this fellow described the, the theory uh, of gravity, the way the planets work, the optics, uh, electromagnetism, so a giant in the field of physics. Very few people know that he actually wrote more in terms of Bible studies and um, timelines of the Bible, and he was just fascinated uh, with his faith. Um, so Isaac Newton wrote, gravity explains the motions of the planets, but it cannot explain who set the planets in, in motion. Um, Einstein himself said, um, the more I study science, the more I believe in God. Um, and Louis Pasteur um, said, a little science takes you away from God, but more of it takes you to him. So, you know, there are plenty of scientists who have been able to reconcile faith and science. Uh, and I think the view that Sam Harris has of it is very narrow. Do we, do we have kind of data to back up that? So I was just going to say, so as a good scientist, you wouldn't depend just on anecdote uh, and a few anecdotes. So um, if you actually look up, um, I took the data from... It's, the um, this is an IQ test, John. Um, <laughs> I fail it regularly, but I'm sure you will uh, succeed where I fail. I just press on the... Uh... Yeah, just press on that and... 
Perhaps with a little bit of help from our production team upstairs. No, not working. Oh, let me see if I can reboot it there, John. Oh, it's gone to remote. If you pass that over, uh, Thank you. I'll see if I can reboot it. Maybe we can ad lib in the meantime. <laughs> I've just I've pulled some data. So if on... we could see the data. <laughs> <laughs> I've just pulled the data from um, the 100 years of Nobel Prize winners to see how many of them uh, have described themselves as Christian in one way or another. And overall, it's 65% of Nobel Prize winners across all fields have described themselves as having some kind of faith. Um, if we start, if you look at literature, it starts at about 50% uh, Christian, and as you go through the sciences, uh, physics, chemistry, medicine, you're hitting uh, 62, 65, 72%, and then, um, which is interesting, once you hit the Nobel Prize, uh, Peace Prize, um, 78% uh, of those winners have described themselves as Christian or having a faith of some sort. So I think the data bears out that uh, you can be a Christian and a, and a scientist uh, and a thinking person yeah, um, yeah. together. Well, just to push into that a little bit further, um, uh, people like Sam Harris say uh, that science, uh, secularism, which uh, is defined <coughs> in, a, in a way that a commitment to no religion in the public sphere, um, and atheism. Uh, some say that these are the only things that are kind of founded on evidence, reason, rationality, those kinds of things. Whereas faith is always irrational, unreasonable, and based on concepts that you can't prove, don't have any evidence. H how do you respond to those kind of claims uh, as a representative of this large group yeah. of people who obviously find a way to bring those, those things together? Yeah. So I, I think Sam Harris has a very narrow view of what constitutes evidence. Mm. Uh, and personally, I think there are um, multiple lines of evidence that point uh, to God, uh, at least some higher force, uh, if not a personal God. Um, and I was just going to go through them because I think there's very little, um, yeah, th th there's a lot of evidence that we can look, point to. So the, the first evidence is from the physical sciences. And what I mean by that is we live in what scientists have found is a very finely tuned universe. So if we look at the, the strength of gravity, if gravity was just a fraction of a percent stronger, all of the universe would collapse. And if it was just a fraction of a percentage uh, weaker, um, the planets would never have formed. Matter would just still be flying out um, in all directions. And so the, the likelihood that gravity has exactly the right uh, strength to create the world that we do, uh, that we have, has been calculated as one over t one with 37 zeros behind it. So there, there's no name for that number, but it's mind-bogglingly large. And, and one with uh, 37 zeros behind it is more atoms than there are in the universe. So it is incredibly, incredibly rare and unlikely that, this, that gravity would have this particular value purely by chance. And I expect someone like John Lennox, who's a mathematician, Exactly. Would, would say that's just impossible. So small it's impossible in, in exactly. reality. To so to, to give you an image of, of what that number looks like, imagine that you take 10 cent coins and you cover Australia with it and you stack them till they reach the moon. Mm. And then you take 3 billion other Australias and you do exactly the same thing. <laughs> and you try and find one 10 cent piece out of those 3 billion continents piled to the moon. That, that gives you an image of what one over one with 37 zeros looks like. So that's incredibly rare. So not only is there the, the strength of gravity, there's 30 other natural constants 
the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, electromagnetic force, that are all exactly the same. If they were just a fraction of a percent different, life wouldn't exist as we know it. Um, and so what you can think of is there are these 30 constants that are all like a dial that is exactly finely tuned to make life possible. And are you going to say that that's purely chance or is there some design behind it? And personally, I think it takes more faith and more belief to say that it's chance than that there is some order and some reason why they are all exactly uh, dialed up that yeah, way. Yeah, fascinating. And, and that's the evidence uh, from the physical science. Yep. And then you've got some other uh, realms of evidence as well, I think. Yep. So we've got evidence from the mathematical science. Um, so a number of scientists talk about what they call the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. And just one example of that, if, if any of you have seen the movie The Man Who Knew Infinity, it's uh, the story of this um, Indian peasant, really, who turned out to be a mathematical genius. And his genius was recognized by the people he was uh, serving in the household. Eventually, they got him to Oxford. He worked with a famous mathematics professor there and uh, did all sorts of incredible work. And among the papers that they found after he died, um, they realized that he described the mathematics of black holes 60 years before they were even known to exist, before anyone conceived them. Wow. Um, and so it seems unlikely that starting from first principles, you can describe something that then has a correlation, an, an actuality in, in physical reality. In the, in the real universe. In the real universe. And, and so if you think our universe is random collisions and pure chance, how is it that starting from the basic principles of mathematics, you can describe the order that you end up seeing in the natural world. To me, that just doesn't uh, fit. So mathematics is all about order. And when you see that order in the natural world, you've got to ask what is behind it. So physical sciences, maths? And then biology. So the area where uh, I'm most familiar with. And this is where um, I think the complexity of biological uh, of the biology and, and the information that we have in the, in the DNA uh, that we carry are, to me, two of the most compelling reasons to look for order. So what I mean by that, obviously studying medicine, the human body is incredibly complex. And even with all the advances that we've made in, in medicine, I think we're still only scratching the surface of and, our understanding. And you mentioned before the, the gene code uh, yes. and DNA, the complexity of that alone. Exactly. So both of those things, I, I mean, if we look at the complexity of the human body, William Paley uh, in the 18th century uh, said, if you're walking along a beach and you see a, a, a watch in the sand, you don't say to yourself, well, isn't it amazing how the sand and this bit of metal uh, has just smashed together in a random way to create this thing that works so beautifully. Whenever you see complexity, you think somebody has put this together. So now... The, the human body is so much more complex than a watch. Why would we say, oh, somebody must have made the watch, but we say, oh, no, nobody made the human body. Um, that complexity uh, has got to point to something bigger. The other bit is not the complexity, but the information that you mentioned in the DNA. So, you know, again, if you're walking along the beach and you see, um, you know, the letter L, uh, scratched into the sand. You know, somebody might say, well, that just happens to be a rock that washed up on the beach and, and kind of scooped out the sand um, a little bit, and it's purely chance. And then you walk a little further and you see the L and the E, and you think, well, 
Is it likely that that was just scratched out in the sand by some shells that floated in and out? And then if you see the whole name Michael spread in the sand, you're going to think, no, somebody wrote that. Now, our DNA is a word that is three billion letters long. Um, so if a seven-letter word, if the information contained in the seven-letter word, we think somebody must have written that, how can we take a three billion letter word and say, well, nobody wrote that? Um, that level of information doesn't just um, come out of nowhere or through random collisions. Yeah, gosh, lots to think about there. Uh, sorry, did you have another? I, th I think the final line of evidence is really our own lives. So um, we, um, I don't think it's on this slide, but it's on the next one. Um, I think if we can move, oh, I think they've loaded the wrong. Anyway. We'll skip that, that, that slide. Um, I think the other line of evidence is from our own lives. So if we think about what motivates us, we have all experienced love or grief or suffering or honor or joy, uh, rage. These are real emotions that um, drive what we do. Um, and to say that they are not real because there is no scientific explanation, um, you, you know, the, it just doesn't make sense. Um, yeah, and that, that brings me to a, a point. I think you take someone like um, Professor Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion, um, a very outspoken, one of the new atheists, very outspoken uh, atheist. Um, he, he, I think what he represents is, and others like him, uh, is different ways of understanding how knowledge works. So if we can get a little bit kind of uh, uh, deep here. Um, he, he really accepts uh, that the natural world and what's observable under the microscope and the telescope is all we can know. Uh, so there are not things beyond that that you can know. Or if there are things, as you say, sort of different human emotions and things, then there must be some kind of scientific explanation for those, but we just don't know what that scientific explanation is yet. But really here we're coming up with this uh, different uh, forms and sources of knowledge in a way, aren't we? Um, he wouldn't accept, for example, that there are other forms of knowledge be outside of the natural world uh, that, or the observable natural world uh, that we can class as uh, legitimate sources of knowledge. Um, and in fact, the, 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 Latin, the, the word science comes from the Latin term uh, scientia or scientia, um, which just means knowledge or, or learning in the Latin. But do you think that, is Dawkins right? Uh, are the only things that we can know those things that you can test and observe and replicate in some kind of empirical experiment from the natural world? So uh, again, I think he's taking a very narrow view of science and, and evidence. I mean, as I said before, we all know that we have felt love or grief or suffering and yet you can't measure those things with an instrument in a scientific lab like my love for melissa or melissa's love for me we can't there's no scientific units to measure that in we can't objectively measure it in a lab and yet it is a very real thing um, and so i think what dawkins is doing here is making a statement about meta science it's talking about the philosophy of science um, and really um, when it comes to um, scientists talking outside their field. Richard Feynman, who was a Nobel Prize winner in 1965, said outside their particular area of expertise, scientists are just as dumb as the next person. 
Um, so Dawkins... Makes the rest of us feel a lot better, doesn't it? <laughs> but really, um, he's talking about... Dawkins is talking about a matter of philosophy uh, and theology in which he's not ex an expert. And, and what he's doing is scientific fundamentalism, which is saying that science can explain every phenomenon. And that breaks the primary rule of science, which is that you use the right tool to study the phenomena that you're looking at. So you wouldn't use a microscope to look at stars, and you wouldn't use a telescope to measure the current in a circuit. And you certainly wouldn't use either of them to look at love, for example. Exactly. So what, what he does is what I call scientific fundamentalism. And probably the best way to understand why that is so flawed is an example that John Lennox uh, put in his book. He says, imagine that you um, put the kettle on to boil, and you ask, why is the kettle boiling? So the scientist will say, well, the, the gas is combusting. It's being transformed into heat. The heat is transferred to the metal. The metal transfers the heat to the water. The water molecules absorb that energy and start buzzing uh, much more. They uh, generate so much energy that they break the van der Waals forces, and they become steam. You've got a scientific explanation for why the kettle is boiling. But the real answer to the question is because I said it boiling because I have a friend visiting. You know? The answer to that question is a fundamentally different category of question. And you can use chemistry and physics to study the heat, the kettle, and the water for hundreds of years and get no closer to who turned the kettle on or why it was turned on. Right? So, in a, so in a sense, uh, uh, you're answering the, the why is the question uh, through a how is the question. Exactly. Sorry, how is the kettle? Why is the kettle boiling? Uh, what you're actually answering with science is a how is the kettle boiling? But the why remains ambiguous to science, I mean, beyond its reach exactly. in, a, in a way. But even as a scientist, it is, it is perfectly reasonable and logical to say, well, the methods I'm using are not going to answer that kind of question. It's a different category of question. And so if I want to answer that other question of why the kettle is boiling, I'm going to have to ask somebody and the person who turned it on. So it's logical and reasonable, I think, to, to ask, to, to look at a different set of methods to answer that question than our, our methods for figuring out why the, or how the, the, the kettle is boiling. And, and picking, up, um, picking up this idea of different uh, forms of knowledge, different sources of knowledge, and different categories of questions, um, the, uh, the, the Christian tradition uh, speaks about revelation as a source of knowledge. Um, and revelation, according to the Christian faith, isn't some kind of just purely mystical, spiritual truth that's just to be blindly believed in spite of all evidence. Um, although we would, we would claim that there is a, a relational aspect, a spiritual aspect to that revelation and to that knowledge. But also, the Christian story says that God becomes knowable to us uh, in human form, that is, that he becomes knowable to us in Jesus. This is the, the primary place of revelation, if you like, according to the Christian story. Um, can you tell us how, how you think about this uh, from your perspective, thinking about knowledge and truth and evidence and, and whether th those sorts of claims stand up? Mm -hmm. So I think, uh, as we've shown with the, the example of the kettle, it's perfectly logical and reasonable to say the methods that I use in science are not appropriate to answer this other kind of question. It's a different category of question. And even somebody like Einstein recognized that. <clears throat> he said, I see a pattern, but my imagination cannot picture the, the maker of that pattern. I see a clock, 
but I can't envision the clock maker. The human mind is unable to conceive of the four dimensions, so how can it conceive of a god before whom a thousand years and a thousand dimensions are as one? So even a scientist can recognize that the methods they are using are not appropriate to the other, question, to the other kinds of questions you're asking. So then the, the question is, you, you can recognize that you need revelation, and so the, as a scientist you, you, you say, well, what revelation should I believe then? Should I go to Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity? And so I think the, the um, threshold, the, the method that Jesus sets himself is quite scientific. He says, every tree is known by its fruit. You know, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So why not make the decision about which revelation to believe by the fruit that it has borne in history? And you look at the evidence, that's perfectly consistent with the scientific method. And, and so when you do that, I think um, there is a very compelling case and very compelling evidence to choose Christianity. So one of the best books I have read in my life is this one by Vishal Mangalwadi called The, the Book That Made Your World. So he, is, he grew up a Hindu in, in India and um, in the particular area of India where he was working and living, um, there were some Christian missionaries and they'd been in, in his area for 40 years, I think. And within 40 years, those missionaries had set up uh, schools for, for the children. They'd set up hospitals uh, to look after people. And he, looked, and he thought to himself, you know, Hinduism has had brilliant people and clever people and kind people. Why is it that our own Hindu priests never set up the schools and the hospitals for our own people? Why did it take Christian missionaries only 40 years to do this for our own people? And that's what got him started in started to think about um, Christianity. Um, and so he has written, he's now become a Christian theologian and, and a fantastic thinker. And in this book, he basically traces the influence of the gospel in every area of life, uh, whether it's education, whether it's health, whether it's um, the arts, whether it's law, and shows how the gospel has actually shaped everything that we are proud of in, in Western civilization. Um, even the um, role of universities. So he points to the fact that science has come out of universities, but universities come out of colleges of divinity. So Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all of these were colleges of divinity. And he says, it's no accident that um, it was Christianity that valued the, the learning and the mind and knowledge. Uh, and that sprang out of this idea that we have a God who is knowable and wants to be known and is predictable um, in the sense of has created a natural word, world that follows some kind of order. Mm. Uh, if you look at other religions, the gods are very fickle, unpredictable, and he says it's no, no surprise that science has sprang out of this fertile kind of intellectual area that it, Christianity created. Um, he said, why is it that all the all the advances that we see in science didn't come out of Hinduism or, or Chinese Oriental thought. And, and most historians of science agree that it was the Christianity and the gospel that set the stage for science to really thrive. Uh, which is a fascinating line of argument, and he's not the only one to make that no. kind of argument, is he? And as, a, as a, now a Christian, you might expect him to be a bit polemical in his uh, arguments. Um, but there, there are others who aren't Christians who argue similar things, like yeah. I think Tom Holland. So Tom Holland is a secular historian, and what uh, Vishal Mangalwadi has done 
by theme across history, um, Tom Holland does uh, chronologically. So he maps out the history of the Western church and how it has shaped Western thought and philosophy uh, and led to all of these advances. So he comes to very much the same conclusion that Vishal Mangalwadi does, but comes at it as a secular historian. And he admits in the last chapter of, of the book Dominion, if you get a chance to go through it, it's kind of this thick. Quite a time. Um, but in the last chapter, he says, after, after writing all of this, he suddenly found himself thinking back to his Sunday school uh, years. He had left the church many years ago, but there was something in him that was awakened when he realized the influence that the church had had in shaping the world that he lives in. Yeah. Uh, just a sidebar, if you've been coming to the uh, vintage uh, services of late, uh, vintage is our midweek uh, service uh, that we hold uh, the Dave Ridley, where's Dave? Okay, Dave and a team uh, run. Uh, Tom Holland features in some of the materials that they're using in that series, the Jesus the Game Changer uh, series. Uh, and we're going to be running that series again after, uh, probably in early May, uh, as, a, as a small group kind of series. You'd be welcome to join. Um, but yeah, very interesting arguments uh, there. Can we flip it around now? We've been talking about... Uh, sorry, was there any more you wanted to say on, on... No, no, I think ultimately it does come down to this weighing of evidence in, in your own spirit. Um, and it's not a scientific method, but it's a method that is appropriate to answer that question. And again, I love Einstein. Um, Einstein says, as a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and the Talmud. I'm a Jew, but I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. Um, so I think, yes, it's not scientific evidence, but it is reasonable and logical to look at these things and, and marry it with your own experience and what makes sense uh, in your own life from what you see. Um, Apologies for rushing you on, on there. That's a great point. Um, but if we can flip it around now to the, to the other question which I mentioned at the outset, which is um, that uh, so far we've been looking at the perceived conflict between science and faith, um, which have really helped us to bridge across that perceived gap. But in some cases, the perceived conflict is on the Christian side. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, that there are some Christians who are suspicious of or even hostile towards modern science. And I'm wondering, where, where do you think that suspicion arises from? And uh, do we see an example of that in uh, the mixed responses that we've seen of late uh, to the COVID pandemic mm -hmm. and COVID vaccines, for example? Yeah, no, that's um, an example in my area that has actually greatly saddened me. Um, th there's been, I think the risk of quite a split in the church between anti-vaxxers and pro-vaxxers. And um, I think it does tie into this um, fundamental attitude of Christians towards science. Um, so just if we stick with that example um, and we try to answer why the mistrust of science. And I think part of it is that we are naturally mistrustful creatures and we're suspicious creatures in our, in our fallen nature. And, and so the mistrust of science is nothing new. So, you know, in the, vac in the history of vaccination, the first vaccine was from Edward Jenner, who um, used cowpox to vaccinate people and protect them against smallpox. So that was a, a, a brilliant observation, and that started the whole field of vaccination. But even back then, in the 1790s, um, the, one of the first reactions was to mistrust um, that finding. 
So rather than seeing science as um, something that people do, that God has given people certain gifts and talents that they can use to his glory, um, there is this kind of mistrust. And, and this is a cartoon uh, from shortly after Jenner um, uh, developed the, the cowpox uh, vaccine. And you can see that there may, maybe this is the first kind of misinformation in social media, but th there are examples of little bits of cows growing out of people thinking this is what's going to happen if you take the cowpox vaccine. Um, but I think the other, th the other part uh, why mistrust may be partly well-founded is that science hasn't had a great track record either. Sometimes science has made major mistakes. So um, this is an example from the polio vaccine. So not many of us would remember in the 1950s, from the 1930s to the 1950s, polio just swept through uh, the Western world and there were tens of thousands of kids who ended up in wheelchairs, paralyzed, iron lungs, not able to breathe you know, outside the ventilator. Um, and it was a major, major um, thing. And so there was again a race to find a vaccine. It took us 20 years back then to come up with a vaccine, but once it was discovered, um, I think it was uh, the Salk vaccine was the first one to come out. And they licensed it to pharmaceutical companies, but one pharmaceutical company didn't inactivate the virus properly. And so there was a batch of 200,000 vaccines where the virus was still live. And 40,000 kids ended up getting polio uh, from the vaccine rather than being protected from it. Um, so, you know, science has made its mistakes as well and has uh, failed. Um, so some of the mistrust is well-founded. Um, but I think ultimately, um, we, we have to, th there is a tension between faith and science in the sense that as Christians we believe that God can heal sovereignly and he can do miracles uh, and yet we go to doctors and we take medications. So there's this tension, you know, do, do we do one only or the other only or can we do both together? Um, and personally, I've had to struggle this as a physician myself, um, I personally think that all healing comes from God. Uh, and a beautiful way to express this, I've found, is in um, the Old Testament book of the Apocrypha, uh, Ecclesiasticus. So this isn't part of our Bible, but I think it's still very useful as an insight in how the, the Old Testament Jewish people reconciled the two. So I'll just read it. It says, My child, when you are ill, do not delay, but pray to the Lord and he will heal you. Give up faults and direct your hands rightly and cleanse your heart from all sin. Offer a sweet-smelling sacrifice then give the physician his place, for the Lord created him. Do not let him leave you, for you need him. There may come a time when recovery lies in the hands of physicians, for they too pray to the Lord, and he grants them success in diagnosis and healing for the sake of preserving life. So I, I think that beautifully summarizes this idea that if we believe all healing, all science comes from God, sometimes he will work sovereignly and sometimes he will work through the gifts and talents that he's given to the humans that he's created. But either way, the glory ends up going to him. Um, and when we go see a doctor, it doesn't deny God's, God's sovereignty. And when we pray, it doesn't mean we are distrusting science. It is possible to do the two together and um, submit to God in whichever way he wants to act. Uh, recognizing, I, I presume, that some science as a human endeavor still does sometimes get it wrong, but nevertheless, science does sort of learn from itself. So the vaccine, the polio vaccine, created um, uh, improvements in the production of vaccines so that they're no longer active 
versions of the virus. Exactly. So that's why the COVID vaccine didn't depend on growing the, the, old, the virus in cell culture. Um, and inactivating it because they didn't want to make those mistakes again. So the COVID vaccine is based on um, just one protein. Um, and producing that protein in culture and using it as a vaccine um, also has its own risks. So again, from the polio, we learned that when they grew the polio virus, they had to use monkey cells. Turned out the monkey cells were infected, infected with a monkey virus called SV40. And so millions of people got injected with a monkey virus. Now they've done the studies, the thought was that it might uh, predispose to cancer, and so they've done the epidemiological studies to show that no, there isn't an increased risk of cancer. But again, they learned from that and they didn't want to use live animal cells to grow anything because they didn't want to repeat that mistake. So that's why the COVID virus uses um, basically fat particles. So there's no live cells and no live virus. Uh, this that. is also why it, it's so important to have people like yourself conducting research in this field, Shu and others as well, uh, to be continually improving and refining mm -hmm. the, the, the scientific approach to, uh, to vaccines mm -hmm. and other areas of medicine. Um, look, if I can throw in a, a bit of a different question now. This actually comes from one of our young people. Um, we, we put out uh, a request for some of our dare people, our young adults, our young people, to pose some questions that we can include today. So we've probably just got time for maybe one or two. Um, but the first one of these, thank you, by the way, to whomever it was that penned this question. Um, has there been a topic or subject that you've analysed in science that ma has made you say, what the heck were you thinking, God? <laughs> yes, I, I was thinking about that. Um, and... Um, we have some friends who, um, just one example, um, we have some friends who are avid hikers and they went to Mount Capitar in northern New South Wales in the National Park there. And um, they sent me pictures of the giant pink slug of Mount Capitar. Um, it is the ugliest looking thing I've ever seen. Um, but this giant pink slug is about 20 centimeters long, five centimeters wide. It, the only place in the world it exists is in Mount Capitar. Um, nobody understands why it's bright pink like that, but um, it's the only place it lives. Um, and when the bushfires came through, 90% of them were killed. So they're, they're now an endangered species. Um, but so Some people might not see that as a loss, <laughs> but, um, but I'm sure it has a place in the ecological world, right? It must, but they, they apparently have a superpower. Um, University of Newcastle people have been studying this particular snail and a cousin called the red triangle snail. Very similar. Um, and apparently the mucus that they secrete quickly turns into super glue. Um, so they, the, the, the ecologists from Newcastle uh, were watching one of these snails. Yeah, and they're all stuck on this snail. They, they are, they are. They, they looked at this frog trying to eat the snail and the frog just got stuck in the mucus that the snail left behind. And they wanted to see how strong it was, so they, they actually watched it for 12 hours. It still couldn't move. They broke off the branch and brought it back to the lab. They watched it for three days, and it still couldn't move. Uh, and they tried to pick it up and release it, and, and their gloves stuck together. Um, anyway, so you think, what is that all about? Um, but anyway, there you go. Something to ask God when we get the chance. Wonderful. Well, let me just um, pose another question again. Um, might have even been from the same person. Uh, so thanks again to whoever wrote this. Has there been something that you've studied uh, 
that has confirmed the existence of God for you personally? Um, we po- perhaps touched on this a bit already, mm-hmm. but uh, if you want to have another go at that question. I just think the complexity of the human body is what I come back to all the time. We are so, uh, as the psalmist says, fearfully and wonderfully made. Mm-hmm. Um, it is just amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the one thing that um, really strikes me being a geneticist is that we thought we would have before we got the human genome, we thought we would have at least 100,000 genes to account for the complexity uh, of our human bodies. When we um, realized, when we got the human genome, we realized we only have 23,000 genes. And some flowers have more genes we, than we do. So some flowers have 100,000 genes. Maybe that's slug? Uh. <laughs> Perhaps. I don't know. You might need a lot of genes to code for that super glue. Um, but the, the complexity um, in, in our genome is not from the number of genes, but the fact that um, each gene serves multiple functions. It is unbelievable the way one protein can serve many different biological pathways. It, and, and the idea that um, evolution, where you have just this random mutation that you know, changes the function of a protein um, to give you a survival advantage, the idea that you could get a random mutation that not only gives you an advantage but stays, keeps that protein working across you know, the 10 or 15 different pathways that it contributes to just doesn't make sense to me. It is something that is incredibly finely tuned. John, probably just time for one last question, um, and that is um, what would you say uh, to people who are not followers of Jesus at the moment and who... Uh, remain sceptical of faith? Do you have any kind of closing words for people uh, who might be in that position? Yeah, I guess this is in my um, role as an epidemiologist and watching what COVID has um, done to us. Um, I I think whether you're a Christian or not, or spiritual or not, everyone has to answer those deep questions of life for themselves. You know, why am I here? What is the meaning? What is my purpose? Um, And I think... COVID more than anything has made us realize that we live lives of mass distraction. You know, we, we shop, we travel, we party, um, anything. We scroll. Keep, well, yes, we do. Social media. Um, we do anything to take up our time and um, prevent us from um, sitting with ourselves and figuring out these deep questions of life. Um, I think COVID has kind of stripped all that from us. And I think that's probably why it's been so hard for people um, to be alone with themselves because suddenly you realize that you don't have the vocabulary and you've never spent the time to think about what are the answers for you personally to these deep questions. And that's something that I see in in my work in palliative care. So um, there are people who are faith, who have lots of faith and they approach death very serenely and they know where they're going and they have this beautiful assurance. I also see some Christians who are completely terrified. So I don't think being a Christian in and of itself necessarily means you answer those questions. But I think regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, you need to find an answer to those questions um, because the time will come, whether it's due to COVID or whether it's due to your own imminent death, when suddenly you will uh, have to face, you know, what did it all mean? What am I leaving behind? What was my purpose? Um, and certainly in palliative care, we see there's a term in, in the field called existential distress, where we, ha- we 
we come across people who are absolutely terrified of death because suddenly they realize their life is going to end and they have spent no time thinking about these questions or finding answers. And they find that they don't even have the vocabulary to express those emotions and those questions. And at that point in life, presumably, um, science offers some answers, but reach its, reaches its limits as well, would you say? Well, as, as we saw in that example of the kettle, I think science um, goes some way, and I think um, science can give you an appreciation of the world that God has created. Um, there's a, an old Jesuit um, scientist and theologian called Teilhard de Chardin who said, research is the highest form of worship or adoration. That looking at the natural world, studying the natural world, gives you an insight into the character and the nature of God. But it can only take you that far. I think answering those deep questions, you've got to look to Revelation to, to answer those. Um, and so, yeah, science gets you part of the way, but I think the scientific thing is to go to recognize that it has limits and to go beyond that. Well, John, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your generosity of time and expertise uh, in joining us this morning to explore these really important questions and the relationship between faith and science. I wonder, would you put your hands together, please, for Laureate Professor John Attia. Thank you. Well, um, I trust that you found that useful and helpful in some way. And uh, John's uh, final comments there were, uh, were actually an unplanned but very, uh, very helpful segue uh, through to the next part of our series, uh, A God You Can Believe In. Uh, in the next three weeks, we are going to be looking at the topic of hope uh, and uh, touching in more than touching, but exploring some of the, the key points that, that John spoke about at the end there, uh, about uh, those fundamental questions uh, facing the end of life that are best to be answered uh, earlier than when you're facing the end of life. Uh, what is our hope uh, as human beings? What is our hope built on? Where can we put our uh, trust and our hope uh, for this life and for the next uh, so next week we'll be looking at uh, the topic of little hope, with a question mark. Um, we seem to be in a world which is uh, increasingly hopeless in some quarters, where mental uh, illness is on the rise, anxiety is on the rise, uh, but also people who aren't suffering from diagnosable mental illness are finding uh, reasons uh, to lose hope in our world today. The following week we'll be flipping that over and looking at the flip side uh, and talking about the high hopes, high hopes that... Uh, some have placed in humankind to continue to progress and discover and um, determine its own destiny, become, if you like, its own God, uh, versus uh, that which we find, uh, the perhaps surprising and radical hope that we find uh, in the Easter story uh, in the Christian tradition. And then finally, um, in this sub-series, we'll be joined by uh, psychologist Linda Rowland to talk about the relationship between hope and mental health uh, in a few weeks' time. So that's what's coming up. If you found today uh, helpful and interesting, um, but you want to go further and read more, there are those couple of uh, books that John mentioned, um, the book that changed your world, 
uh, we can provide a link uh, to that as a resource. And there's some others here uh, as well, which will circulate uh, tomorrow or in the coming days by email, uh, including a book there by John Lennox, whom uh, uh, John uh, mentioned a couple of times this morning. But thank you again for joining us uh, for this wonderful conversation. And uh, whether you're online or here in person, it was wonderful to have you here. And would you join me once again in putting your hands together for Laureate Professor John Attia. Well, let me just close quickly in prayer. Lord, thank you uh, for uh, the world in which we live, the cosmos, the universe in which we live and move and have our being. Um, and that it itself lives, moves, has its being in your goodness and grace and creative genius. We pray uh, that we would find when we look around us, whether under a microscope, through a telescope, or just through the lenses of our own eyes, we would see the hints and suggestions of that genius at work all around us, from a flower or a weird slug through to the complexity of our own human bodies and the created environment which we have um, around us. Uh, and uh, may it cause us to give you glory and honour and praise uh, as the good God who's poured out love and goodness upon us through your creation, through making us, and through uh, making yourself known to us in Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus, by the power of your Spirit, for the glory of the Father. Amen.